thought that I would go ahead and just introduce a little bit about who I am, so that way I'm not a complete and total stranger to you guys here this morning. I am here with my uh, wife this morning. Yes, she is pregnant. This Thursday, she will be 36 weeks pregnant, so we are uh, anxiously awaiting the arrival of our sweet son, Benjamin, who's expected to be born next month, so we have certainly been busy um, with preparing for that and getting things ready around the house and those kinds of things. I know Pastor Jeremy from Denver Seminary, where I know that he just graduated from, uh, but I myself am still finishing up there. And so I am in the Master's of Divinity program, concentrating in theology. So I am uh, really just a big book nerd. So if you ever want to talk deep theology and get into the specifics of that, I am your guy. Um, what else? I am a Connections pastor at a church uh, south of here in Castle Pines, Colorado. Uh, basically there I deal with guest services, so I follow up with first-time visitors. On Sunday mornings I oversee our hospitality ministry, so this would include um, anybody that's uh, dealing with signs or parking team. And I mean, really, I'm the coffee and donuts guy on Sunday morning. That's what I do. So. Uh, anyways, that's just a little bit about who I am. I love to get to know you guys more and get to share more of, of who I am and get to know you guys as well um, for the rest of the morning. So now that I'm not a complete and total stranger to you guys here this morning, let's go ahead and jump into our conversation. It's my understanding that you guys are currently going through the Sermon on the Mount, currently in a series on Jesus's authoritative teaching on how to practically and ethically live in the kingdom of God. So that's where we're going to be this morning. If you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to the book of Matthew and head on over to chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. As you guys are turning there, and perhaps, you know, at the risk of repeating information that you maybe have already heard multiple times up to this point in the series, I'd love to just provide you guys with a little bit of background information about the author in the book that I think will be helpful in understanding really what's going on in our passage here this morning. The book of Matthew was written by the same Matthew who was one of Jesus' 12 disciples, uh, one of the first and earliest disciples that Jesus called. Uh, this is Matthew the tax collector, sometimes referred to as Levi or Matthew Levi. You'll see that in scripture from time to time. Although Matthew was not the first gospel to be written, historically speaking, it is placed first in the Bible and the New Testament because it's trying to bridge the gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And that's because Matthew is writing specifically to a group of Jewish Christians, not people outside of Israel, people within Israel who were Jews that came to saving faith in the long-awaited promised Messiah of the Old Testament. And they believed that Jesus was that person. Now, in chapter 7 this morning, we're going to just look at one verse specifically, Matthew 7, 12. Now, before we get to that verse, though, I need to, to talk about another verse that comes a couple of chapters before, because this, this other verse really kind of serves as an umbrella statement for all of the Sermon on the Mount, and that's Matthew 4, 17. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to. Matthew 4, 17 says this, from that time on, Jesus began to preach this message, repent for the kingdom of God has come. That's what Jesus was going around saying. That was the big idea of his overall ministry. Repent, for the kingdom of God has come. And Jesus was introducing something new, and he's teaching then in Matthew 5 through 7 on how to live practically in the kingdom of God because it has come near. So as we look at our specific verse out of Matthew 7 this morning, remember that idea of repenting, changing your ways, because the kingdom of God has come near. Now this morning, like I said, 
We're going to look at Matthew 7, verse 12. Matthew 7, verse 12 is commonly referred to in all cultures and societies throughout history as the golden rule. And this morning, what we're going to do is, is spend a little bit of time looking at the golden rule and, and some of its historical interpretations. Then we're going to look at how it plays into two sections that come before Matthew 7, 12. Depending on the translation that you're using this morning, uh, some translators have decided to put Matthew 7, 12 with verses 13 and 14. Uh, but the best way to understand Matthew 7, 12 is actually as a summary statement of verses 1 through 11. So like I said, we're going to look at Matthew 7, 12, and then we're going to see how it plays into two different ideas, judging others and praying. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and read Matthew 7, 12. So Jesus says, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. I'll read this one more time this morning. So whatever, Jesus, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also for them. For this is the law and the prophets. Now this idea, like I said, has been commonly referred to as uh, the golden rule. And that's because all people throughout all of history, regardless of race, ethnicity, geographical location have this, this uh, morally, um, morally imputed idea of wanting others to do to us what we do to them. We want to be treated fairly. So this is nothing new necessarily to Jesus in his time. In fact, what might come as a surprise to you this morning is that this idea of doing to others what we would have them do unto us was something that had been around for over four or 500 years before the time of Jesus. It wasn't original, original to him during his earthly historical ministry. As an example of that, uh, I will read you some different quotes of other ancient religious and philosophical teachers who uh, taught this same idea. But the interesting thing about all these other people is that they put the golden rule in the negative instead of the positive. Here are a few examples. The first one is from Confucius. This was an ancient Chinese philosopher living about five or 600 years before the time of Jesus. And he stated the golden rule this way. Whatever you do not want done to yourself, do not do it to others. A man by the name of, of Isocrates, this was a Greek rhetorician who lived about three or 400 years before Jesus. He stated the golden rule this way. So whatever angers you when you suffer at the hands of others, do not do it to others. And an ancient Jewish teacher alive during the same time as Jesus by the name of Hillel said it this way. Whatever is hateful to you, do not do it to your neighbor. That is the whole Torah. Now the problem with a negative interpretation of the golden rule, do not do to other people what you don't want them to do to you, is that you could theoretically apply that negative interpretation of the golden rule without doing anything. If you don't want people to hurt you or offend you or say mean things to you or something like that, then don't go out and say anything to anybody. But the thing is, Jesus then seems to be the only historical uh, religious teacher, if not one of the only ones, who put this in the positive form. He said, do unto others what you would have them do unto you. And by doing that, by putting the golden rule in the positive form, Jesus takes it one step further and calls every single one of us to action. He says, you actually have to go out there and do things for people that you want them for do to you. Essentially, Jesus is saying this. Go out there and build others up. Don't tear them down. Jesus is saying build others up and don't tear them down. That's what the golden rule is really all about. 
It's not a passive concern for avoiding conflicts with other people. It is an active concern for the well-being and betterment of every single person. Build others up, don't tear them down. This is so important for Jesus, in fact, that he says the entire Old Testament is summarized in this one idea. That's what Jesus means when he says the law and the prophets. That's a first century Jewish way of saying uh, the Old Testament. That's what we call the Old Testament. Just like Jesus said, love God and love others are the two most important commandments, the same idea is worded here in the golden rule as do unto others which you would have them do unto you because the reality for every single one of us in here today is this. We all want to be loved. We want to be cared for. We want to be fulfilled. We want to be uh, thought of as important. We want other people to notice us. We want to be loved. And in the same way that God commands us to love himself and love other people, he commands us then to go out there and love other people. Build them up. Do for them what you would have them do for you. Build others up. Don't tear them down. So that's Jesus's understanding of the golden rule. He puts it in the positive form and commands us to actually go out there and do things for other people that we would have them do for us. Now I want to take some time and see how that can practically play out in our relationships with one another through judging other people and through our prayer life. We're going to start off by reading Matthew 7, 1 through 6. I recognize you guys were here a couple weeks ago. We're just going to kind of review that material and then see how the golden rule plays into that idea. So this is Matthew 7, verses 1 through 6. Judge not that you would not be judged, for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you seek the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, hey, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take out the log out of your own eye, and then you will be able to see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give to dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot in turn to attack you. Now, in my preparation for this message, I came across a study that said at one point in history, I'm not exactly sure when, Matthew 7, verse 1, is one of the most commonly quoted Bible verses of all time. Now, you guys and myself would say something like, no, 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 Genesis 1-1 is, or John 3-16, those are the most common quoted ones. But for a lot of people, Matthew 7-1 is. And one of the reasons why it's the most commonly quoted Bible verse for some people is because this verse is used by non-believers to sort of push back or resist or fight against a believer who might disagree with one of their decisions or a certain lifestyle. This comes across in the idea of, of you might hear it said, uh, said something like this, well, doesn't the Bible say that you're not supposed to judge me? Or another one, which I always find really interesting, you can't judge me, only God can. And I'm like, yeah, that should terrify you. But that's besides the point this morning. What Jesus is saying here, actually what might come as a surprise to most of you in here today, is that when a non-believer uses that verse against you in a sense and says, you can't judge me, only God can, they're actually right. And here's what I mean by that. The entire Sermon on the Mount, all of Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus is speaking specifically to his disciples. People that have already said yes to Jesus, agreed to his 
his lifestyle and his teachings. They've already given themselves to him. And Jesus is talking to people that have already said yes to him and said, don't judge each other as in fellow believers. He's not even talking about those who don't believe in Jesus. Because the people who don't have a relationship with God, we can trust that God will take care of their behavior and their decisions. We don't have to worry about it. In a sense, they have an excuse because they don't have any kind of active relationship with God from which to base their decisions for right and wrong on. Now, of course, as Romans 1 talks about, they'll still be held accountable for their decisions. But again, we can let God take care of that and we don't have to worry about ourselves. Jesus is saying to his disciples in Matthew 7, 1 through 6 here, don't judge each other because, first of all, you need to focus on yourself. Because all of us in here this morning have been in this situation at one time or another. We see a brother or sister in Christ fall or sin or do something like that, whether it's someone that we know personally or perhaps something that we've read online, and this is usually our mindset. Wow, I can't believe that person did that. I mean, don't they know better? Don't they have a relationship with God? Why would they make that decision? How could they lie like that? Whatever the case is. If you ever find yourself in a situation like that, you need to remember three things. First of all, you don't know how hard that person tried not to sin. Man, they could have been battling temptation all day long. And then they had that one moment that we happened to see, and we all of a sudden label them and judge them for the wrong decision. That's the first thing. Secondly, we don't, we need, we don't know what kind of dark spiritual forces that person is up against. They could be facing some very demonic stuff, some very demonic spiritual powers that we need to remember are trying to bring them down. They could have been, Satan and his demons could have been working for months, for years, just for that one moment. And thirdly, most important of all, we all need to remember that ultimately we don't know how we would have responded in a similar situation. Here's a, a good way of how this idea is illustrated. Uh, years ago, a, a Texas pastor by the name of Chuck Swindle, some of you have probably heard of him before, he was asked to be the keynote speaker at a conference up in Spokane, Washington. Well, when he got there, this, this gentleman uh, had come up to him at the beginning of the conference and said, Pastor Swindle, I'm really excited to hear you talk. I've been looking forward to it for a long time. This, this gentleman showed a lot of enthusiasm and, and energy and excitement to hear Pastor Swindle preach. You know, he thanks him for his words, whatever, and gets started with the conference. When Pastor Swindle got up into the pulpit on, on the stage, front and center is that man who said that he was really excited to hear him preach. He thought, this is really nice. This is kind of cool. But the thing that shocked Pastor Swindle the most was that a couple minutes into his message, the gentleman in the front and center who talked with him before the conference was dead asleep. So he thought, okay, that's... That's a little weird. I mean, I know he drove from California. It's hot in this room. There's a lot of people. I can understand the guy's tired. But over the course of the next several days for the entire conference, this same thing would happen. He would show excitement for hearing him talk, but then would fall asleep a couple minutes into his message. So eventually, Pastor Swindle got kind of confused and a little bit bothered and frustrated by this gentleman's actions. Well, when the conference was over, the gentleman's wife came up to Pastor Swindle to essentially apologize for her husband's behavior. And she said this, she said, I'm sorry that he's fallen asleep. He was recently diagnosed with terminal cancer. And the medication that he's been taking makes him very, very sleepy, but it relieves the pain. 
And this gentleman had expressed a desire to his wife to see Chuck Swindle preach in person before he died, and he was able to do that, even if it was only for a few minutes before he fell asleep. Ultimately, Chuck Swindle recognized that he was not building that man up. Through his anger and his frustration, he was tearing him down. So how does, how does this idea of, of judging others play into the golden rule? Well, it's this. We need to remember, it's related to our big idea this morning, build others up, don't tear them down. We need to remember this, that God, through his son Jesus, calls us to judge ourselves first, to check our own sinful behavior first before we try and do it for other people. Because God does work through other people to reconcile individuals to himself, but God cannot do that if there is sin in our hearts that blocks the way from getting to that person. So instead of standing over here and looking at that individual and saying, wow, at least I'm not like that. At least I didn't mess up like that. At least I didn't sin like that. We should focus on our own hearts. Essentially, we need to make sure that we're judging ourselves first before we judge other people. Now, sometimes in speaking engagements like this, the easiest way to tell a group of people what a passage does mean is by telling them what it doesn't mean. Here's what this passage doesn't mean before we move on to the next point. This passage is not saying that if you see a brother or sister in Christ in a destructive pattern of sin, to just do nothing and stand by because you have to deal with yourself first. No, no, no. This passage is saying that before you get to that... One of the most loving and biblical things that you can do for an individual in a destructive pattern of sin is to rebuke them, is to lovingly come alongside of them and say, I love you, but what you're doing is wrong, so let's get you out of that. But this passage is saying that before you get to that point, you need to check your own heart, purify your heart by praying to God, receiving Jesus, coming before him, asking him to purify and cleanse you before you go out there to help other people. That way God can work and flow freely through you. We need to build others up in our judging and not tear them down. That's Jesus' understanding of the golden rule as it, applies, as it applies to judging others. Now let's take some time and talk about how the golden rule plays into our prayer life when we, requ- when we request things before God. So this is Matthew 7, verses 7 through 11. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will you give him a serpent? If then you, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your own children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven Give good things to those who ask him. Now, taken the wrong way, this set of verses might seem to imply that, oh, okay, so if we just pray to God, if we ask, seek, and find, he'll give us whatever we want. And, of course, that's not true here this morning. What this verse is saying, each of these three things, asking, seeking, and knocking, are essentially three different metaphors for prayer. Jesus, in teaching to his disciples, is trying to get them to understand If you legitimately, genuinely, and wholeheartedly seek after the kingdom of God, the big idea of all of Matthew 5 through 7, if you legitimately and genuinely seek 
the kingdom of God, then your prayers will be answered. Why? Because when we genuinely seek the kingdom of God, especially in our prayer life, our hearts become aligned with God's heart, and we begin to want what he wants, and in doing that, our prayers will be answered. But that begs the question, why does Jesus say three things? He says to ask and to seek and to knock. I mean, if Jesus just wanted his disciples to understand that all they had to do was pray to the Father and be in line with the kingdom, then their prayers would be answered. Why did he have to say three things and not just one? Well, because of this. Jesus is trying to get his disciples to understand this is not a type of prayer. Prayer will not be answered simply by you just tacking on a request at the end of your prayer for dinner, all right? God is saying, Jesus is saying here, that for your prayers to be answered, this needs to be active, repetitive, continual, intensified prayer. Not just a one-time thing. Does God answer prayers when we say, uh, when we ask him for something and ask him to answer a prayer just one time? Of course he does. But here's what I've come to believe over the course of my life. I've come to believe that the, the majority of the time, the norm is, is that God sometimes doesn't answer prayers right away simply because he wants us to just keep talking to him. He just wants us to keep coming back to him with our requests, to keep revisiting that idea, to keep asking him to answer that because when we do that, our hearts become connected with his, our hearts want what he wants, our hearts desire his kingdom, and in doing that, prayers will be answered. So that's what Jesus is saying about asking and seeking and knocking. This is what the second half of this section is all about. Verses 9 through 11 remind us that that God is not a God of trickery. God doesn't want to deceive us or, or play games with us. God wholeheartedly wants us to give Uh, wants to give us everything our hearts desire when it's in line with the kingdom of God because we're wanting the same things that God is wanting. That's what verse 11 is all about here when it says, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your own children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? As I said at the beginning of this message here this morning, my wife and I are expecting the arrival of our sweet son, Benjamin, next month. Now, we have certainly been busy preparing for that by uh, stuffing diapers in drawers and in painting dressers and buying all kinds of supplies and those kinds of things. Now, I recognize I'm not a perfect human being, nor will I ever be a perfect human being. I'm not a perfect father, nor will I ever be a perfect father, but so far... I like to believe that I and my wife have done a pretty good job of preparing for the arrival of our son. I'd like to think that in in getting his room ready and in buying these supplies and getting these clothes and praying for him and all those kinds of things, that we have have done a pretty good job of, of setting up an environment which he can flourish in. Now, if I, a sinful human being, can do that for my own son, who I haven't even seen with my eyes or held with my hands yet, then surely God, who is a perfect father, who made us in his image, who sees us and holds us every single day, then certainly he can do that for his own children. He wants to give us good things. Now let's recognize the obvious here this morning. Sometimes (laughs) that does not seem like the case. 
All of us at some point in our life, or perhaps even um, a season of your life right now, we, go through, we go, go through these periods where it doesn't feel like God is good. That it doesn't feel like God is, is perfect or that he wants to give us good gifts. It could be something related to our bank account, and it just never seems to have enough money to make it to the next month. Or, or perhaps you have a prodigal son or daughter who's, who's run away that, that is just breaking your heart or... Maybe it's just something with, with work dynamics and, and failed business ventures or hard dynamics with, with different members in your family. Whatever the case is, I recognize both from personal experience and in talking with other people that sometimes it does not feel like that. That it doesn't feel like God is good or that he wants to give us good gifts. So what do we do in those kinds of situations? Well, my encouragement and my challenge to you is this. When you find yourself in a situation like that, step back from the situation, analyze the areas of your life where you can tell that God is blessing you. There are areas where God is good and he has already blessed you. Maybe you do have a a prodigal son or daughter, but at least they still come around every now and then. Somehow that money in the bank account still seems to, to be enough for the next month or you receive that blessing and that gift from another person. Whether it's a failed business venture or hard dynamics, at least the business is still running and at least your family is still around. Whatever the case is, stop and analyze your situation. Find areas of your life where God has been blessing you and then take that realization and use it as motivation to get you into the next season. Because the reality is God is good, God is perfect, and God does give us good things, even when it doesn't feel like it. That's the coolest part about this passage, verses 7 through 11. Each one of those commands from Jesus, ask and seek and knock, are all followed up by a promise from God. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find Knock, and the door will be opened to you. God is good, and God is perfect all the time. So how do these verses play into the golden rule? I mean, what is it about our prayer life that, that, that talks about or deals with, with, with doing to others what we would have them do to us? Well, it's this. When, when Jesus commands his disciples, when he commands you and I to ask and seek and knock, he is reminding us, that he calls us to action because God answers prayer through people, right? This is not something where you can just go to your room at night or whatever and pray, God, I pray that you would heal this person or I pray that you would provide this thing for this person or that you would change that person's perspective and their behavior and then say amen and walk away from it, just expecting God to answer prayer supernaturally. Does God answer prayer supernaturally? Without human intervention, of course he does. But again, over the course of my life, I have come to believe that God primarily answers prayer through people by them actually going out and doing things for other people that we would have them do to us. So much so that when we pray, God, I pray that you would heal this person or I pray that you would provide this thing for this person or that you would change this person's behavior and perspective. We say amen and then we go out and do something about it. We go out and we pray as we interact with these people, as we talk with them, as we actually do things. And in our prayer life, we build them up instead of tearing them down. 
That's what Jesus is commanding us to do in our prayer life, is to build others up and not tear them down. So that's the golden rule. That's how Jesus understands it. He puts it in a positive form, and he calls every single one of us to action. And that action includes checking our own heart and dealing with our own sin before we go out there and try to deal with the sins of other people. And he commands us to build others up in our prayer life by actually going out there and doing something about it, not just saying amen and walking away. But this all begs the question, why should I care about this? Okay, Jesus gave us a command, and we're supposed to go out there and do things about it, but why is it important? What is the point of it? Well, the reality for all of us in here is this, is that when Jesus commands us to go out there and do things for other people that we would have them do for us, he's doing that, he's commanding that, he's saying that because that is what he has done for us. God, through his son Jesus, decided to build us up when we deserved to be beaten down. Jesus, he transcended all of time and space to step inside of human history, die for our sins, that we might have life, that we might be forgiven, that we might flourish when we deserved death, when we deserved to be beaten down. God built us up. He gave us a new name to be known by. He gave us a new life to live through his son when we deserved to be beaten down. So if God himself, who is perfect and who is good, commands us to go out there and build others up instead of tear them down, he's, he's saying that because that is what he has done for us. So if God has done that for us, let us then this week... Go out there and do the same for other people. Build them up instead of tearing them down. Judge them in a way that you would want to be judged yourself by judging yourself first. Pray for them. Build them up in your prayers before you decide to tear them down. Do for others what we would have them do for us. Requires action because God himself took action. Pray with me this morning and then we'll take communion. Heavenly Father, thank you for this church. I thank you for this body, and I thank you for the time that you have given me to be here with these individuals, to share a little bit of my heart and connect with them, and we just thank you for allowing us to fellowship in an area so freely and so openly. God, we thank you that you have done for us um, so much good. You have built us up when we deserve to be beaten down, so I ask that you would fill every single one of us this week with your spirit so that we can go out there and build other people up instead of tear them down. We love you, God. Thank you for giving us life. Thank you for being our perfect example, no matter what season of life we are in. We love you, and it's in the name of your Son, through the power of the Holy Spirit, that we pray these things. Amen. Amen.